Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by wealthy bad guys and poorly trained henchmen. I guess you're going for quantity, not quality. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Tommy Carchetti. Vote for change. Vote Carchetti for mayor. Welcome to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm Todd. <laughs> what is that? What is that from? That is from the greatest TV show ever. And you haven't seen it yet. Oh, okay. So yep. I'm not. Okay. Yep. Well, what is it? I, well, I can't watch it <laughs> if it's if I don't know. Ooh, you have me in a bind. I do. <laughs> it's The Wire. Okay. It's a wire. All right. Yeah, I got, uh, I'm one of those. I got through four episodes and I haven't been able to get through the rest yet. I'll I'll get back to it. It's a very slow burn. I know. And everybody out there is like, you haven't watched the wire. (laughs) Why? I'm going to burn you alive. Yeah. You have to turn off your cinema senses and turn on your intellect and like really. Oh, I got to turn on the intellect. I know. You're hurting me here, man. Screw that, man. What am I supposed to do with that? (laughs) Welcome to the vessel where we like to dive into any given film. Usually every once in a while we'll do a one-off but today we're going to be doing fight club yeah beware if you have not seen fight club there's a lot of spoilers uh yeah it's about to go down mm-hmm. um in the biggest way so there's all kinds of interesting things that happen in the film go watch it if you haven't most of you probably have this is like a 15 plus year old movie close to 99 20 now yeah god 1999 things are moving fast yeah man <laughs> So today we're going to be talking about a lot of things, um, lighting, camera work, some of the transitions, and a lot more. Um, probably dive into the story a little bit. I don't know. I feel like personally, probably have to. I, you kind you can't not talk about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but the 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 catch with it is, I feel like this is such a well known movie. There's already so much content online about this film. Yep. That I don't know how much new we'll be able to add to the conversation. But I definitely want to hear what you have I don't, to say. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if people tune, tune into this just for, like, the new information. Hmm. Maybe maybe it's more about the way that we present it. Hmm. Or that, you know, like, maybe they just like the sound of your voice. My voice? Yes, your voice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, not really, uh, I'm not really sure how much new we'll bring to light, but you never know. Yeah. I like it. I mean, you know, it could be possible that someone has seen this film but hasn't looked up a lot of information on it and has just stumbled upon our podcast. So That's true. Well, hopefully in that, in that case, case, we're talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here's the synopsis of, of the film. An insomniac office worker looking for a way to change his life crosses paths with a devil-may-care soap maker, forming an underground fight club that evolves into something much, much more. It's directed by David Fincher, screenplay by Jim Wools, based on the novel uh, by Chuck Palahniuk. Palahniuk. Is that right? I, that's sure. the way I've always pronounced okay, it. Okay, cool. Awesome. Uh, starring Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden, Edward Norton as the narrator, and Helena Bottom Carter as Marla. You know, man, it could be worse. A woman could cut off your penis while you're sleeping and toss it out the window of a moving car. There's always that. I don't know. It's just when you buy furniture, you tell yourself, that's it. That's the last sofa I'm going to need. Whatever else happens, I've got that sofa problem handled. Oh, I had a stereo that was very decent, a wardrobe that was getting very respectable. I was close to being complete. Shit, man, now it's all gone. All gone. All gone. 
duvet is. Comfort. It's a blanket. Just a blanket. Now, why do guys like you and I know what a duvet is? Is this essential to our survival? In the hunter-gatherer sense of the word? No. What are we then? Consumers. Right. We are consumers. We are byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. Murder, crime, poverty, these things don't concern me. What concerns me are celebrity magazines, television with 500 channels, some guy's name on my underwear, Rogaine, Viagra, Olestra. Martha Stewart. Fuck Martha Stewart. Martha's polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's all going down, man. So fuck off with your sofa units and string green stripe patterns. I say never be complete. I say stop being perfect. I say let, let's evolve. Let the chips fall where they may. That's me, and I could be wrong. Maybe it's a terrible tragedy. Uh, it's just it's just stuff. It's not well, you did lose a lot of versatile solutions for modern learning. Fuck, you're right. No, that's me. Insurance is probably gonna cover it. So. Oh. What? The things you own end up owning you. But do what you like, man. Yeah. <laughs> so good. And now after watching that again, seeing how Tyler starts, how his character begins, mm-hmm. it, it's 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 a great piece of acting. He builds that character into just a maniac, a maniac. <laughs> um, it, but it's, which is, which is perfect for, and here's you know, one of the big spoilers for the way that Ed Norton is creating him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, he's not just like all out of the gate. He's just crazy. You know, it's these little things here or there like, Oh, maybe I don't need that stuff. You know, maybe, you know, maybe what I'm looking at is important. Maybe that's not quite as important. Hmm. And he's just like testing these things out in his mind. And then it start. It, he starts going down that rabbit hole. And so Tyler gets crazier and crazier and crazier and crazier. Oh, it's oh, a great <laughs> clip. It's a great clip. Man. It really is. And he dives into, you know, effectively uh, the epicenter of the, the film itself, right? The right. things you own end up owning you. Yeah which is significant for a lot of reasons, but I think that's ultimately where the film ends is he needs Tyler Durden in order to devolve. He called it evolution. I think, I mean, if you look at this, you know, from an outside perspective, yeah. what he's actually talking about is the evolution. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting rid of all the things that have made up society and culture and you're trying to get back to some baser instinct and some uh, more simple, innate thing in us that is so innate in us that it's the, it's the self that we see in our mind's eye, Yeah, which is all Tyler is. It's the self that he wants to be. And that's what they say in the film. But at the end of it, and here's kind of the... I was saving this for another section, but it just... Let's do it right now. Let's, it. Dude, let's go crazy. <laughs> it's just, let's be Tyler. <laughs> Is that... Where, where did I write it? He had to get rid of Tyler to be free at the end. At the end of the film, right? Tyler was his salvation, but it was also became his captor. Right. And so if the whole goal was to hit rock bottom 
in order to truly achieve that, right, he had to get rid of the one thing that was still helping him. And which goes back to the things you own end up owning you. Mm -hmm. He owned his imagination, this thing that was in him, but it ended up begin beginning to own him and control his destiny. So he had to destroy that. He had to get rid of that. That was a a necessary part of his uh, degression into rock bottom. Mm -hmm. And Uh, he couldn't achieve it without it. It's totally right. Um, I didn't even think of that. But one one thing, I think I've seen this movie probably four or five times. (laughs) Same. And and one thing that I always questioned until this last time was, how the hell does he shoot himself and be okay, right? (laughs) But after watching this again and paying really close attention, Tyler is smart. Tyler knows a lot of random shit about random shit. And so he would know how to do that. And Mm. so he's realizing, Oh, that gun's not in Tyler's hand. That gun's in my hand. He's realizing he is Tyler or a piece of Tyler. So he has Tyler's knowledge. Yeah. And so he uses that to effectively destroy that part of him. That is Tyler. He like knows if I aim the gun at this angle or whatever, then I'll be okay. Yeah. And I'm guessing because I still don't really know, but maybe. That's no, it. I think that's I think that's right on because he knew before that scene uh, in the scenes leading up to it. But there's two types of knowledge I think we have at play. Yeah. And there is the 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 intellectual like I understand this thing is happening to me. But then there's the the faith part of, you know, the way we live. Like, I understand that this chair is going to catch me if I sit in it. But do I really believe in the chair yeah. to catch me? There Based is, on the way it looks. There is no spoon. There is no spoon. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. so, yeah, I think you're totally right. I think that uh, completely plays into it. And, yeah. I mean, trying to dissect this film, you could do it in probably a good dozen ways. Mm-hmm. And more, depending on how you know nuanced you want to get with it. Yeah. Uh, because of just... All the dialogue is pointing at something. And, and in some ways, when films don't point at it as directly, when it's more of a subtextual or a thematic thing, it's easier to figure it out. Yeah. But the more they talk about it in the film, the more it begins to uh, kind of make it harder in some ways to it, say yeah, exactly <laughs> what is our point here. It's all it's it's like it's like, where do you hide the treasure right under their nose? Because <laughs> yeah. that's the last place they'd look. And they talk about it through the entire film. And when you know that Tyler is part of his his imagination or part mm-hmm. of his brain, uh, then that's one thing. Then you start to notice after you've seen it once, you start to notice all of these lines. They're just Easter eggs everywhere. Yeah. It's it's so fantastic. But the first time you see it, you don't really necessarily think that. I mean, I didn't at least. Maybe smarter people would. Yeah. And so I don't know how to take the, the overall message. Like, is this an anarchist film or is this something that is holding up anarchy as a method of saying that this isn't a good thing? Um, is it just trying to hold up a mirror to society? And in that way, you're you're asking yourself some hard questions and saying, you know, am I truly living the life that I want to live? Because if you look at the human sacrifice portions, right at the mm-hmm. end of the film, they have this yeah. door with the label human sacrifice and they have like 50 license driver's licenses hanging off of it yeah. to signal that they've been carrying out that ritual, putting someone to the gun and saying, what is it in your life that you truly want? You're going to do that or I'm going to kill you. Yeah. And I think that's powerful in and of itself just because so many people I know for years I didn't don't pursue the things that is really in their heart. 
Yeah. And if you understood at the end of the day that I'm going to die, whether or not I pursue that thing, why would that, why wouldn't that, you know, encourage you to go after the thing you're going to go, you want anyway, Yeah. at least chase a dream. And so many people don't even, don't even chase it. They just, I'm just going to go work at, you know, the convenience store. I can own a store and I can make some money that way. And for some people, I'm sure they could own. I started thinking about this a lot. I was like, yeah, I could definitely uh, own convenience stores and probably make a lot of money owning car washes. And I would just be running that all day, every day. And maybe I'd have a lot of money, but I'd be so unsatisfied with life yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I couldn't do it. Whereas right now I'm like dead broke and I'm like loving what I do. <laughs> it's quite a paradox. <laughs> I see, I see your enigma there. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's, so it's what a little you, bit of a balance, you yeah. know, like, like, so at the end, after the whole gun situation and Tyler's mm-hmm. gone, you see Ed Norton, He's a, a different version of his former self. He's not Tyler. He's not the extreme. He's not the do whatever you effing want yep. at any time that you want it. But he's not his former self where he was scared and he was, you know, sad that all his stuff was burned, you know, got his apartment got burned down and, and, and all that stuff. He was just, he was just, you know, there was no sense of loss. There was no sense of longing. He was satisfied, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. For lack of a better term, he was, it was just a, it was a balance. And maybe that for me was, I guess if you had to put a meaning to it, I don't, I really don't put a meaning to this film. <laughs> Honestly, I, I sit, I look at it and I say, that's an awesome story, mm. you know, that I'm sure a lot of people are warring with, like they want to be the Tyler Durden with the perfect body, uh, you know, who can screw all night and like, you know, just, do whatever he wants and not Mm -hmm. worry about anything. But then they kind of don't, you know, there's like, you want a piece of that, but you don't want all of that. That's exhausting. If you've ever known some, I know, I know several people (laughs) that I cannot be around because they are physically exhausting to be in the same room as. So to be like Tyler dirt, no way I, I could not handle it. But to be like that first version of Ed Norton is also just, that's unbearable. It's unbearable. It's, that's, I don't know if that might be worse. Who knows? <laughs> but there's this balance of him at the end and he's calm. He's like, he's, he's Marla. It's okay. I'm okay. You met me at a strange part in my life. <laughs> and then they just turn and watch everything. And I like to think that they just leave there and, you know, I don't know. They, they travel, they go around the world. He's got paychecks now, <laughs> you know, from his job. Well, money is meaningless now. The, well, oh yeah. That's, well, no, the credit. Dead, well, if all the credit is gone, then I don't know that money is going to retain its value because all the people that would ordinarily accept it, right? All the bank records, all that stuff is kind of wiped out. Well, maybe paper money, right? Maybe. It still exists. So I would wonder, I mean, it'll physically still exist. Yeah. I just yeah. wonder if like people would want to trade in it, <laughs> all things considered, maybe. But then know. the big banks still win, I think. Which is what they were trying to war against with, uh, with all the, the the captors in society. And mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. It's <laughs> a whole different like, conversation. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> anyway, I, I just think it, there's like a little bit of a balance at the end that I like. Yeah. That, that's good. I, and so we have we have those kinds of messages. Then you also have just the reflecting on men in society. 
mm-hmm. like from the very beginning, there's a comment, a commentary that's being placed on. We go to this on Bob with Bob yeah. as definitely our archetype. Yeah. Because what did he used to be? A bodybuilder. Yeah. And he yeah. took too much good stuff and yeah. uh, it messed up his hormones and he grew uh, these boobs and he's now overweight. He's out of shape and he got ca- testicular cancer. And what happens when that happens? You lose your balls. And so it's like they're making a commentary that as a society, because in that room, if you notice in the in the top corner, there's a big, huge American flag. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It feels like they're essentially saying that we're a nation of uh, nutless dum-dums because yeah. we are cur- constantly being advertised to. We're, we're just consumers. We only know how to take. We don't really know who we are on the inside, which there's probably a large amount of truth to that, yeah. um, considering, you know, just – if you're going through life without really thinking about what you want to do, what what you're passionate about, you're probably not in touch with who you really are. Mm. And if you are, it's in this really vague way of this this person in your head that you're never going to realize because you keep doing the same thing you do every day. And so it feels like there's a long commentary throughout the film that's being run around men and you know, we're we're a generation raised by our moms. And I love the the question that he poses if fathers are our representation of God and if our fathers abandon us, what does that tell us about the nature of God? And so there's all these really interesting dynamics at play here about the nature of who we are and context of where we're coming from mm-hmm. with family. And yeah. yeah, so, I mean, there's just so much, like I said, you could take this in a thousand different ways and they make this comment. <laughs> Tyler Durden makes this comment. Okay. Self-improvement is masturbation. <laughs> Holy hell. Yeah, that's the extreme. That is so extreme. <laughs> Don't make yourself better. Make yourself worse. But at the end of the day, uh, Tyler Durden was never actually real. Right. Right. He was a figment of an imagination of someone he thought he needed to be. Mm-hmm not who we actually should be. Right. And like you said, it comes back to there's a balance. Mm -hmm. There's a place of confidence and there's a place of being outgoing, but there's also a place of growing and self-improving. Right. Because that is actual evolution. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If you're not improving yourself, then you're not evolving. Um, And you can use that, you know, in the less literal sense. Evolution is obviously a, a thing that happens over thousands and millions of years, if at a minimum, hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and so there's that level of evolving, but there's this more personal day-to-day level that we talk about. There's something, there's like a hair that's invading my space. What? I'm sorry, hair. I'll leave now. I'm a, not a man. <laughs> like poking you in the eye. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of good notes and messages. You're not your job. You're not how much money you make. I love that. Yeah. Because that is the absolute truth. And, you know, the things you own end up owning you. I mean, come on. Yep. Such a great. It really is. And then the moment right before Tyler uh, takes off is they're in the car and he's 
giving him this big speech, you know, about you need to let go, stop trying to control everything. And he has this line that I love so much. And it kind of harkens back to the self-improvement line, which he says, rock bottom is not a seminar or weekend retreat. And it's, it's such a deep thing because I think sometimes we want to take these shortcuts to getting to who we are really on the inside. And maybe it can be in a retreat or seminar. Maybe that can help you, but that's, that's out. That's external work. That's not the internal work that you need to be doing. And that internal work probably will include some external, you know, activity because if all you're doing every day is, you know, putting your head in the book or vegging out to TV, then yeah, okay. You're not, that external work isn't helping, but the internal work that should be doing, maybe it includes whatever, going out to nature, reading a different book, one that's more for your mind or one that's for your soul. I don't know, but I love that idea that it's not as simple as just going to a place mm-hmm. and sitting through a thing. Cause that's what you, you do in a seminar. You have to participate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like I said, this, <laughs> there's like so many little nooks and crannies they can go through with this. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the detail of, of the film. Uh, so one of the things you mentioned that you want to talk about is the lighting. Yeah. So there's so much, I think even before we, right before we jump into that, the, we can start at the beginning, which is the title sequence. Oh yeah. We've talked previously about how important the title sequence is. And here it's important. I think in a slightly different way, it's still kind of setting the energy of the film, but you don't really get to experience that energy, that level of energy until halfway through the film, really, um, because it's so frenetic and kinetic and uh, it's very blue and there's just a lot happening. Though, as soon as you get out of that title sequence, you do get into the the voiceover. It's just kind of popping you around all over the place. And so there is still some of that energy as far as editing and storytelling. But in terms of the actual story movement, I don't feel like you get that until uh, well into the film. But it still sets the tone. But most importantly, maybe it sets the answer right in front of you because what you're doing is traveling through his brain yeah, yeah. and all you see all these synaptic firings and the, the neurons are interacting and you're just traveling through it. To, and then you pull out to reveal, you know, the sweat, the gun, Edward Norton being held hostage and the reverse of uh, Brad Pitt. And in that opening scene, all you, you're already getting clues to what's happening in the film. Yeah. And it's so sneaky. <laughs> he says, he says, I should have known Tyler no, knew or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's like the very first thing he says. I'm like, oh, how did I miss that? Right out of the gate. <laughs> yeah. And so diving into like lighting and some of the other technical aspects, this film, man, was kind of driving me crazy. I was making the, all these notes about the color and I couldn't figure it out. I, I feel like there's a, there's a missing key that I need because I, I have to think that either a Fincher was lighting every scene based on the scene itself and not necessarily on some grander scale of there's a theme to the colors, right? Like blue represents reality and, uh, the sickly orange represents how, how off humanity is. And you're going to see these color schemes in this, uh, this green, yellow, tinty, uh, backlighting anytime you're without Tyler or you're outside of the fight club. It's not that simple. And I couldn't quite nail it down. Um, and likewise with some of the camera movements, he's using almost every single thing. Fincher does not, is not a big fan of like handheld stuff. 
He's going to use cranes and dollies. He's going to dolly in, dolly out. He's going to track left, right. He's going to do both all at the same time. He's going to steady cam and he, he's doing it all. And so I'm not sure outside of breaking down a particular scene, I'm going to be able to give you much in terms of a cohesive view of some of the complexities, but I can give you some snapshots. Um, and one of them comes from the scene that we listened to in that bar scene. They have all kinds of lighting happen. Uh, it's kind of crazy. There's just light everywhere. Anything goes. If we look at just the background of Tyler, we can see candles on the table behind him. Uh, on camera, right? You see the, like these little candles and those little red jars and they're kind of flickering around you see these this hallway light in the background that kind of falls off as it moves towards us towards the camera uh, so you have some contrast that's happening to the background you have these i'm assuming i don't know what they are we never get a good look but i think they're like christmas lights that are hanging above the bar mm-hmm. that's adding like all this bokeh um, for the background you have this little table light that there's this little weird i don't know beam or table whatever it is that has these mirrors on on it and those mirrors are reflecting lights from the other side of the bar but then underneath that mirror you also have these little lights i think they're like orange or something and so just on one frame you have just tons of lighting and interesting depth that's just making the scene come alive and that's kind of one of the nice things about bars you can get away with that yeah you any bar could look throw up any some Christmas kind of lights way. and boom. There yeah, because there's no set like you can't you can't do that quite as easily if you go to a nice restaurant. Right. You're yeah. not going to be able to mix all this all this lighting up. Uh, but then on the background of the narrator, um, Edward Norton, I have to call him the narrator because that's his name in the credits. And the only way to distinguish him from Tyler Durden. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but behind him, we have these two neon signs. You have the Budweiser on screen left and then on screen right, we have another Budweiser. Which, incidentally, when you exit the bar, there's a Budweiser bottle sitting right there, too. I feel like maybe they were a sponsor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is one great way to get you know funding for your film if you can pre-sell some yeah. product placement into the film itself. And then you have uh, behind Edward Norton, uh, the narrator, again, you have pool lights, like those little lamps that hang over pool tables. And so with all of that, they have all these options now. That really, when it comes to lighting the characters, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) You can key it how you want. You can fill it how you want. You can rim light anyway just because you have all the motivation you need around. And so it's all so crazy that everything feels motivated no matter what you do because you have all these different colored lights everywhere. It all plays really well. I love that uh, when they step outside the bar, suddenly everything becomes blue and we're entering into a whole new world. And it's one of it's not the first time. I think the first time we see blue, uh, a blue scene is in the is in a safe place, is in the mm-hmm. ice caves uh, with the penguin, mm-hmm. which is a talking penguin. Why not? <laughs> Why not? It's a brain. It's so. one of those things where I imagine they're working out the budget and they're like, ah, we could shave, you know, three hundred thousand dollars without this penguin. I'm really going to want that Wait, penguin. I'm really going to want that penguin. <laughs> like, what? Make it happen, Dave. <laughs> so great. Yeah. Um, and so you step out, you have all this blue, and it's and the bar works all of that as this perfect motivation. For one, you feel the, the change in the lighting, but then because you're at a bar, it's also a perfect motiv- motivation for their first fight, right? They've been yeah. drinking. The inhibition right. is down. Yeah. 
And when inhibitions are down, you find out who you really are. And it's just perfect as a method of lighting your characters, as a method of introducing this new phase of the film. All of it works and it all happened in a bar. But one thing I really like about mixed lighting in general, and this is one of those things where if you're making a, a, a narrative and it can sometimes be tempting to make everything the same color, like, oh, it's the color temperature. Okay, we're shooting all this daylight. It also flattens out whenever you have all this uniform lighting. It flattens everything out. And depending on what you're doing and what else is in frame, maybe you're adding contrast through the clothing options and through wardrobe or set design. Okay. But in general, it might just make it a little more dull and lifeless in your scene. There's no contrast. There's no dynamic quality. And lighting adds so much to that. When you have mixed lighting, it adds a lot of flavor and contrast. Uh, it adds a dynamic I don't know quality, just that you're suddenly seeing the character. They pop out a little bit more if they're lit, you know, in this slightly differently than everything else. Yeah, because if yeah. the backlight is this kind of orangey candlelight look, uh, then you can light your guys maybe at, you know, around 4000 Kelvin. And then maybe what does that mean? 4000 Kelvin would be like that- it's closer to shade like if you're shooting indoors and the window lights pouring in you're probably closer to like 4600 kelvin and so anytime if daylight is 5500 and you want to make the daylight look blue then you want to color balance down to like in your mid 4000s and just tinker with until it feels right to you gotcha but that's one way to add just a little bit of coolness to a scene whereas maybe you don't want it to feel hot and sticky got it um okay and so if you do that right, let's say we're color balanced for 4,000 on our main character and then as the main key light, the, the main light that's giving him uh, his lighting on his face. And then the background, you have something that's candlelit probably around like 2,500, 2,300, somewhere in the – it's warmer. It's orangey. And then what you can do too is your, your character is now – his skin looks like skin. It doesn't look jaundiced and it doesn't look blue. But you can do these little edge lights or a little rim lighting that helps break them out from the background or just adds a little extra something so that you can see the definition of like their jaw or the opposite of the the key. Okay. Uh, that's usually the way I like to light uh, a key versus a, a backlight. And maybe you do that at daylight colored. So now they have just a hair of blue coming in and hopefully you motivate that through the scene somehow. But there's so much more you can do. All I'm saying is with mixed lighting. Yeah. It adds so much more flavor to your scene. The other thing that, God, I feel like I could watch this whole film and just try to pick out transitions. They are just yeah. popping around All over the place. like mad. Yeah. And some ways they're just doing these hard cuts. But from the very opening, the they, they start to tell you that this is going to be moving along. And they do this match cut that is awesome because – it pulls you right into Bob's boobs, yep. right? Yeah, right. It's the top. It's this great match cut that begins from this pullout of Edward Norton giving you this VO about all the things you should have known. And here's where it really started, uh, that Marla chick, you know. And he, even though there's no motivation in the scene itself, throws himself to the left. Yeah, to, to his m- left. To his left to motivate the match cut into Bob's boobs. Yeah, where he slammed into his <laughs> yeah. boobs. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense on its own. Like no. he's not in the middle of this scene, you know, 
fretting over his life and just, I'm just going to move to the left weirdly. Yeah. <laughs> but it works because it's an edit decision that we're doing this thing uh, that's going to help us transition right. and pop us in and out. They do on one point, like they do a, uh, and this happens more, more often than I probably realize, but there's this section where I don't remember who we're looking at anymore. I think it's someone in one of the anonymous groups and we cut from her who's what's a, a still shot straight into a dolly move. Uh, it's right around the 15 minute mark and we move right into this dolly move out outside and they have just tons of these little transitions because with this voiceover, we're constantly popping from scene to scene. And so finding creative ways to make it all connect because ultimately that's, that's everything is connected and it should be in every film, but this even more so. And I'll talk about the voiceover here in a second, because I think that plays a really significant role in the film, um, not just in terms of style, but in terms of the story, the story itself. The the other cool ways they use transitions is uh, sound. They do a lot of cutting on sound. So like. I start to feel like yeah. I'm a Pavlov dog <laughs> with all the bells, the dings, water. Like there's a section that run around the 39 minute mark where he's at the office after one of his first fights. And he's talking about how after a fight, like the world seems more calm and distant. Yeah. <laughs> and his yeah. boss is drowned out and his boss is asking him for some report. And Norton throws these papers at him and the papers land, but they don't make a paper sound. They make a water droplet sound. And that. And we don't even cut immediately. We still wait like a half a beat before we transition to the bathroom scene of him and uh, Tyler Durden having the conversation about his their their father. And it's just this little key in. And you could kind of call this a what you call a J cut, which is you overlap the sound for sound before oh, you see yeah. the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of what's happening but it's also just this this audio cue that because it's not a hard we don't immediately transition into that scene so it's yeah. not a true j cut uh in my opinion anyway um they have this really great transition with just ambient noise where he's doing this uh recall talk where he's cutting from the burned car where they're going through this whole should we recall the car after this big accident it's burned to a crisp and they do this transition in the voiceover where he goes from having a voiceover to conversing with a woman about his job. And he's scaring the daylights out of her. Yeah. <laughs> but on they, the plane? On the plane. Yeah, right. And it's great because it's it's suddenly no longer uh, voiceover. And they mostly sell that through the change in quality of his voice itself, but also in the ambient noise of the airplane. And it just seamlessly blends all these things together. Uh, same thing with like the seatbelt ding when he first meets Tyler Durden, which yep. kind of comes into play at the very end of the movie. The first time we meet Tyler Durden is cued on that ding. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the movie, when he realizes, I think we might be the same person. What does he say? Lock, uh, click your seatbelts and oh, put your yeah. seat in upright, full upright position or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so he's kind of connecting these two unconnected events in a really interesting uh, and that subtle one. way. Nice. And that's kind of cool. And of course the most commonly used uh, transition, I think is like camera wipes, which yep. is you use right extras walking back and forth in front of the camera mm-hmm. to motivate uh, a cut. And usually that's most mostly used as a way to cut the scene itself. 
so that as you cut to one frame to another, the you have all this blockage that helps make it feel like it's all one big scene instead of we shot this over, you know, 30 takes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just one of those little cheats. But then the last transition I'll talk about is the maybe the biggest transition of them all without there actually being a Tyler's body falling down at the end. His final thud is heard even though his body has vanished. We don't see his body his upright. He falls to his knees, falls to his butt, and then as he's falling to his side, he's gone. But we hear the thud. We still have that mental edit in our head thanks to the the continuation of the di- the uh, the sound effect of his body actually hitting the ground. Right, right. And that's just this really subtle thing that's bridging the gap between uh, what was and what is now. And uh, it's, it's beautiful. Like It's such a subtle thing that they could have either just cut it or kept his body in there. But it was just, a, I think, a really important way to – to bridge that gap. So when they when they cut, because when he when he does hit the ground, I think they cut to a higher up angle, mm-hmm. and showing down on on Ed Norton, and he's not there. Do yeah. they cut on the thud? Right or, before it. So they cut before the thud, but we still hear a thud. Yeah, you're watching. Oh, you're watching okay. the blank space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As the and thud you're still happens. Hearing the, yeah. So what what is that edit? Because it's the video and not the audio. That's weird. I don't know. That's awesome. Yeah. I would kind of still call it a. I don't know. It's not necessarily a match cut, but I got nothing else for it. It's yeah. just a sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> but I love Very that. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. And going back to the voiceover. So a lot of films like to use voiceover, which is fine. Uh, it's usually a dangerous thing and a. 90 minute plus feature mm-hmm. because it can be taxing or it can be just a little cheap. It can be a, a, a ploy, but because mo- mostly people want you to say, show me, don't tell me. And voiceover begins violating that rule. It can just get a little hammy, but I love it here. And I feel like most bigger projects do this well, or at least the more artistic ones uh, do it really well because in this case, and what it should be doing if you're using voiceover properly for a narrative of any kind is it should be establishing perspective. Right. Whose perspective are we hearing right now? And in this case, we we establish right off the bat through the present time. And normally I kind of hate the three days earlier, you know, cuts where you, you begin with the most dramatic thing in the world and yeah. you cut back to – well, three months ago, here's where we began. It's like, oh, God. Yeah, I got to go through, through three months. Yeah, yeah, to get to that part. Yeah. Um, and you just kind of roll your eyes. But here I think it's really important because we're not only establishing who's talking visually, but we're also establishing the <laughs> the nature of – so this allows, because we're watching everything through his perspective, for all the cheating and for all the surprises to come. Because if he's the storyteller, he can do whatever he wants. He's not beholden to tell you the truth. He's only beholden to tell you his perspective on what's happening. Right. And that makes it so much better than if we had just suddenly got to the end of the film, having never experienced that opening scene. And it'd be almost like it was all a dream. You feel it feels wrong. It feels a little wishy-washy. Yeah. Um, and it, it just doesn't feel quite as honest. But here, right off the bat, we know 
okay, we're, we're about to hear this guy's story and how he got to where he is right now. And we're, it, it's actually establishing Tyler as in, as a real character. Yeah. As like a real person yeah. that has, this is, this is a real gun held by a real hand by a real person in this other real person's mouth. Yeah. So you're expecting that. So just, okay, where does Tyler come in in the story? I'm looking for Tyler. I'm looking for Tyler. And so when you see him, you're like, oh, okay, there he is the real person that was at the, that um, it's going to lead back to this real event at the end. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes pulling the surprise that much easier yeah. as well. Because like you said, you've established this, this character mm-hmm. and there's other films that use this technique. I won't go into them. We'll probably do one in the not too distant future, but that they use voiceover as a means of misdirection of what's happening in the story. And that can confuse the audience sometimes. And I think in the case that we end up doing, I think it did, but it's still an excellent film. You're welcome people. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But the nice thing with voiceover too, is it's, it allows for quicker storytelling. If you're, that's one of the best things about voiceover actually is the ability to establish a character and their thought pattern, who they are, and you just connect with them that much quicker whenever you're hearing their their dialogue, their internal dialogue. And in this case, Fight Club also, it's quicker for storytelling, but they added the challenge, Fincher did, by including the timing of the voiceover with the scene dialogue itself. And so it's not like they were using this in a lazy way whatsoever because it was like interacting with the scene. He's talking with his boss. He takes a pause. His voiceover kicks in. And then right after the voiceover, he right nips on the heels of it, you know, resumes his conversation with the boss. And so it's really well done and constructed. And it's hard to tell whether or not uh, they just were playing it on set or how they managed to get the timing done that well. If uh, maybe Fincher was reading it off off screen, I don't know. But I would have probably voted for let's record the the voiceover first and yeah. then play it back. Almost like some films will have, let's do a phone call. Okay. In order for me to interact with you on the phone call, I'm just going to talk to you right now on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. right. Um, to give him something to play off of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, but this also, this voiceover usage also helps hide Tyler's name, the narrator's name, because we're constantly hearing his voice. We don't necessarily think too much about the fact that we don't hear his name said because we're constantly seeing things from his perspective. And I honestly don't know how often I go through the day with, with people saying my name out loud. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. not aware of it. Yeah. Um, and that's just kind of the way it plays out. Even though you, at one point, uh, Marla calls him out. It's like, what is your name? Is it Rupert? <laughs> is it Cornelius? <laughs> yeah. What is it? And then we just do this match cut with the bus. <laughs> yeah. Right. That right. zooms in front of her and then we're gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's awesome, man. Oh, uh, <laughs> Uh, so every scene is just thought out perfectly. God, so meticulous. The final section I'll jump on is the camera work and some of the composition choices. This will be really quick. Tyler's intro scene, going back to that, they're on the plane. And the way they shoot this is two shots. They do a two shot of each of them. We're on the window side looking at Edward Norton, but we still see full frame Tyler in the frame. And then on the reverse angle, we're looking at Tyler Durden from the aisle. 
and we still see the narrator in full view. And so they establish very strongly that they're in the same universe, <laughs> that they're in the same shot. What we probably don't realize is it's also a subtle touch of they're they're inhabiting the same screen. They're the same. Yeah, it's really the same person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they kick it up a big notch whenever they go to the revelation, because now they're not in the same shot. Instead, well, I mean, whenever he gets up off the bed and he starts walking over to him, we have this very wide two shot uh, where Tyler's on the left, narrator's on the right. And then we cut into coverage where they're both framed along like the right third. And if you have the same person, if you have two people framed in the same section of the, the screen of the composition, then whenever you're intercutting, they're overlapping. Your eye never really has to move. But what that also does in some ways, if you want to use that, what will end up happening is you might suggest that they're fighting for, for territory, that they're fighting to for dominance by overlapping them like that. Mm. But in this case, they're overlapping them because they're the same person. And so if you were to like put the, the frames one over the other and like drop the opacity, they'd basically be inhabiting the same side oh, of the screen. Wow, they're cool. literally the same person and they're yeah. doing that by not making your eye move. Yeah. You're constantly looking at the same person. That's cool, man. Super subtle, but yeah, how do you think of all these things? That's one crazy. of those extra little things like, Oh yeah, that's clever. And it totally works. I also love the, uh, the blocking, of Marla exiting from the uh, her, her suicide rescue <laughs> whenever yeah. she takes all the Xanax. Yeah, yeah, right. And she's like, have you ever heard a death rattle? <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's excellent. So good. Hella oh Bonham God. Carter. Oh, my God. Yeah. I love that as she's making her escape with Tyler, he's kind of yanking her around. And why I love that is because for acting, unless you're doing a walking talk, where you're walking with the camera and it's tracking with you talking at that point is fine. It's easy to hear. It's easy to pay attention to what you're saying because in the frame of the camera itself, you're relatively stable. But if you have a still shot and you're walking around talking, that adds a level of erratic nature to it. And so the best way to do it and the way one of my acting coaches likes to say it is, Action trumps dialogue. If you're talking right. while you're walking, yeah. we're going to see you walking more than hear what you're having to say. And so in this case, what's happening is Marla keeps stopping to yell things about herself to the police in this third person kind of way. The girl they lived there used to be a wonderful person. <laughs> and then Tyler yanks her. Yeah. And then she runs back again, you know, uh, even though she's moved a little bit further. And so this whole time we're kind of, tracking with her moving actually i can't remember if we're moving or if these are locked off shots or if it's just kind of panning and tilting uh or all of the above <laughs> fincher is probably doing all, probably of, the above. all of it yeah <laughs> but it's beautiful because it gives her an excuse to be still to deliver her dialogue and then she gets to use tyler uh, brad pitt to help progress her through the frame and so it's just a very subtle thing to help add so much more dynamic nature to the to the scene itself because she's being flailed around all over the place but she also gets to deliver her dialogue very cleanly and in a way that you're going to digest it and it's not interfering with the story mm -hmm. it's all playing together and it's one of those things that 
I don't know if it made it into the script. Maybe it did. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's one of those things that they're working with the with Fincher and Cronenworth, uh, the uh, the cinematographer, to say, hey, how can we make this scene jump out a little bit more? Okay, well, what if you're just trying to get her the hell out of the building and she keeps fighting because she's a nutcase? <laughs> and now you're adding to their character. Yeah. You're adding yeah. to the scene yeah. instead of just kind of zooming through it. Yeah. And sometimes I think yeah. whenever we're working through a scene, it just gets easy to say uh, – did you ever have to do presentations in like school? Sure, like, yeah. Elementary? Yeah, of course. I remember in the the third grade, I we were all reading these poems, and I was reading a Langston Hughes poem called Dreams. And I remember everybody would get up in front of the class and just kind of rush through it. And I got up in front of the class, and I rushed through it. And the teacher calls me out, and she says, don't just say the words to get through it, you know. Take your time. Really... Think about what's being said here. What's being said about dreams? What do you think it all means? Like digest it for a little bit. She didn't say digest, but uh, that was the the intent. Yeah. And I think so so often when we're shooting something, we we kind of forget. Hey, let's just take a breather. Let's take like, a. Why are we shooting this? Why are we shooting this? Yeah. What can we do instead of, okay, point A to point B? No, let's say let's block it out. Let's add something to it, yeah. and you can sense. Like you said, all through this movie, <laughs> they don't waste anything. Do you think a scene like that, like was kind of a, could have been adjusted on on set, mm -hmm. or maybe it was written that way? I, I mean, uh, how my, would you know? I know. Yeah, but how like, would you know? But my suspicion is it was something that happened on set. Yeah. They said, "Hey, let's block this scene," and maybe Fincher jumps out right off the bat and says, "You know what? I was thinking that he's just kind of pushing her along," and. They had this roundabout talk. Well, that doesn't feel right. You know, what do you think? You trust your actors. This is what they do. And then you also trust your cinematographer. This is what he does. He He's there to add all kinds of dynamic nature to what you're trying to create. Yeah. Trust yours. Trust your people. You know what I just thought about? Pizza. What I would, I would, re pizza. <laughs> yes. I've been thinking about pizza all day, actually. Uh, I ate pizza today. Um, I would Man, I would love to watch this movie as Ed Norton playing both characters. Wow. I think that would totally change how you look at it. Because, like, yeah, he's on the phone with Marla. Marla saying, I just took a bunch of Xanax. He's like, you're crazy. Go away. <laughs> and he leaves the phone, right? Then from around the other corner, here, come, here comes, here comes Tyler. And Tyler picks up the phone, but it's really Ed Norton who picks yeah. up the phone. And it's Ed Norton who goes to her aid, who goes to her apartment and, and saves her in the way Tyler would, you know? Yeah. And so like to see him as a character play two different characters like that, I would, man, I would love to see that, you know? <laughs> that would it, be awesome. <laughs> kind of like, well, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I just would love to see that movie made. That would be dope. I'd <laughs> would watch be that. so awesome. Just all Ed Norton yeah. the whole time, you know, even in the fight scenes. Cause you know, they show, you know, they show in the film, like when he's beaten himself up on oh, the, yeah, yeah. On, at towards the end when Tyler's beating him up and, so uh, or good. when he's fighting himself in the parking lot, he's dragging dra himself by the collar. Like, like that, that's what I want to see. I want to see all of that without Tyler in it. That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would Man. be freaking amazing. Yeah. So the last thing I'll say is the uh, the section with the the lie where he's oh, burning yeah, his hand. Right. 
that's brutal. But he does the simplest thing there, um, which is to keep the camera still. Oh, right. And then all of and Orton's movement is it's, much more dramatic, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's the simplest thing in the world. And as opposed to someone like a Paul Greengrass, who had, he's done a lot of the uh, the Bourne films, mm. where it's just oh, like, yeah, God. let me Dizzy. shoot this on a pogo stick in a windstorm. Like, <laughs> it's, just, it's just all That's over the board. Very good description of every fight scene in a Bourne movie. <laughs> that just came out of nowhere, so sorry. It's perfect. <laughs> but yeah, like make a stronger decision that gives help because he never cheats. That was the one thing I don't think he ever uses in this film as far as camera language. Is it pogo stick? Is. <laughs> and a windstorm. Is <laughs> <laughs> handheld. handheld. I never see him go handheld. Right, right, right. You know, it's always we're understanding the exact blocking and setup of the scene. This, these characters over here and this characters over here, they're fighting. This is what's happening in the chore- choreography of the fight. You always understand what's happening on screen exactly as, as you're meant to instead of we're trying to jazz up the – if anything, he'll use extra edits to, hide it, to help add you know excitement and rhythm like the car crash sequence. There's just a ton of edits that happen right there. But even that isn't as edity as something like a Michael Bay film or a Paul Greengrass film. Yeah. And so he's very disciplined with his camera moves uh, in a way that – We'll talk about it at the very end of the episode, but it's it's meticulous and it's thought out and it's all there to support, you know, the story, which is ultimately what you should be trying to do. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So that covers most of my notes. The other yeah. stuff I have like pages of notes about the story and I was like, oh, God, I, I can't do this. Well, one, <laughs> one thing that you didn't speak to that I thought that you would have spoken to mm-hmm. was the thing we talked about after uh, watching it the other day was his 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 use of space so one of the very first scenes in the very first scene ed norton says there's bombs all over the city there's one beneath us in this building and instead of cutting and you brought this up to me the uh, the first time instead of cutting to the bombs he takes the camera down to the basement like you visually the camera moves goes through walls and floors and everything down to the basement so spatially you as a viewer see how close this actually is and and instead of like cutting to somewhere it could be you know in spain somewhere it's no it's in this building right here that the camera has just gone to yeah it's not a waste of animation and set building and camera moves because it's establishing very firmly the geography And because of that, it ramps up the danger, like you said, you know, so much more because we're sitting on top of all this, all these bombs. And there's a great little video essay that discusses this exact scene that I'll post in the the show notes so you can get, you know, a really cool outsider breakdown of it. But it's it's brilliant and it's not wasteful, even though I can I can see (laughs) an executive saying Oh God, here we go again. Yeah. David. (laughs) (laughs) Does he do that in other films? Yeah. I think most notably probably is panic room. Oh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's probably some wastefulness in there. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. It's pretty cool though. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, actually, if you think about it, the, the title sequence is the same. Hmm, That's the first time he does it because it's coming out of his brain. Yeah. And it's, you know, 
spatially we see the camera coming out and then it comes out of his skin and like we talked about earlier. Yeah. So that's the first move. But yeah. then in that scene, he does another one again down to the bombs. Yeah. So, and I don't think that he overuses it in this film. I, no, like you not said, whatsoever. I, I don't think that there's one time that he does it where I'm like, yeah, he didn't need to do that. Yeah. No, it's like, no, it's, it's done really well. And I like, I mean, it seems like he shoots this film at least on a lot of wide angle lenses or at least wider. Uh, it's hard to say he, yeah. he was shooting, you know, an old cinema camera. So I, I assume it was like super 35, which all the numbers start to get fuzzy, but probably something like a 24 millimeter lens, because what happens then is, uh, the depth gets so much easier to discern. Yeah. Long lenses have do a lot of beautiful stuff and it's much more flattering on faces because it begins to flatten out all your features. Whereas if, uh, you put someone up close on a wide angle lens, the depth of their nose compared to their face becomes much more obvious and it just becomes strange. Um, and it can add a weird quality. So like if you were to do that with, I don't know, like a 16 millimeter, get your face all up in there. So, Weird, man. so that, that brings up a good question then. So the, the scene, the scene where Ty, Tyler actually, and this is the one time where they, maybe not the one time, but one time in particular, they use camera shake or maybe it's in post where he turns around and he talks to the camera. Mm -hmm. And then later on, Ed Norton realizes he was Tyler. And so it shows Ed doing the same thing. Yeah. So that was, I, I mean, I could even tell that was a wide angle lens Yeah. because it looked really warped on the sides and his face, the facial expressions looked very strange, like you said. And it was, and so, yeah, I'm, th I'm trying to think of any other scenes where there was like super close up or necessary. There was no moment where it was necessary to be like, you know, to have like a, a, a narrower view, you know, like like the wide angle lenses worked for this entire film, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. And you get into the uh, the part where they kidnap the whoever that is, uh, the mayor whatever in the banquet oh, right. hall yeah. mm -hmm. and we're, we oh, have yeah. looking directly into the, the lens yeah. and, it, and you can perfectly, and it helps because it's a wide angle lens to be able to stage and block Everybody. everyone around the camera. Yeah. Now yeah. we can cover much more space and still have them close to the camera on a yeah. longer lens, right? You get, that's just the whole frame. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> kind of your face. <laughs> I, I feel like shorter lenses, it's a little easier to cheat a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. you know, to make it look good. Yeah. Right. Cause you get, you know, these, you know, like depths of good depth of field and mm -hmm. stuff, but, uh, on a wider lens, you can tell a better story. Maybe you can, you know, but you also have to pay a lot of attention to everything that's in the frame. Yeah. Right. So like the scene you were talking about with them talking in the bar, all of those things were staged, all of those little lights and everything had to be, you had to pay attention to that very carefully. So the cinematographer had to be on page with David and, mm. and, uh, and it's a pain because if you might get into some of these wider city shots and suddenly, okay, we really want some bokeh back there. Hey, can you go 10 blocks away yeah. and stage some lights back yeah, there? Yeah, right. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate it. Three hours later. Yeah. I mean, it's a wonder they ever, anybody ever finishes movies. It really I mean, really think about it. I mean, I've been on commercial sets that take literally all, I, I'll sit around. I was just on a Ford commercial mm. and I, I don't know if it was a commercial. I don't know what it was, whatever. <laughs> and I sat around for hours on a couch, just sat there for hours while they did like tiny little things. And I'm like, how do you make a movie? 
an hour and a half movie. It's outrageous. They take months and millions of dollars yeah. and hundreds or thousands of people. That's how they do it, I guess. That is exactly how you yeah. do it. Yeah. To that point, you know what I also love about that scene of them staged all around the camera in the banquet hall is mm. it going back to the whole idea of consumerism and what we are as a society and as men and these docile creatures. Fincher does not exclude himself from that conversation by effectively inserting, you know, the uh, you think about the uh, the projectionist scene, mm -hmm. which I find really hysterical just oh, because right. uh, Fincher is now like a diehard uh, digital guy. He shoots digital only nowadays. Really? Yeah. Ever since uh, Zodiac. Oh, OK. He's been shooting digital. And but you go back to the scene where he's the projectionist and they're splicing film. Yeah. And what he's saying effectively is we get to add all the subliminal stuff that we want and you're going to watch it and you're going to take it. Um, and they do in this movie and they do in this movie. They do it as a punchline. Yeah. Um, but he's also like kind of pointing at himself like it's happening to you right now. And yeah. it's so meta. You don't even understand it. <laughs> well, you know, you they do flashes of of Tyler. Oh, Tyler, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So if you watch the if you watch the film before you meet Tyler, watch. I think it's probably like four or five times. Uh -huh. They'll insert insert one frame of Tyler in 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 just a moment. It, all of a sudden, there'll be a flash. You'll be like, "Whoa, what was that?" You know. I can't remember it, if that was in the original cut of the film, or he was it was denied to him, or if I just didn't notice it. I don't remember. If you did not notice it the first time, right? There's no way. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't notice it. But I mean, this one, I couldn't not notice it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> exactly. In fact, I noticed when I saw it the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm really going to pay attention. I'm going to find every time that this happens. <laughs> it's so, it's such, it's such a, a heady, the writer of this film, who, who wrote it? Chuck Palahniuk. Yeah. Wrote God the book. Lee. This dude is on another planet, man. Yeah. I've read one of his books and... It does it, much like this film. It does not end the way it begins. It just yeah. takes you on this crazy random ride. Uh, yeah, he's pick up one of his books if you want to be thoroughly entertained. Just leave any expectations at the door. Okay, good to know. <laughs> awesome. It's so weird. Sweet. Well, that's all I got. Nice. I think. Yeah, that's... I, I probably will think of like five or six things as soon as we cut. But there's so much to this film. But that for someone who hasn't seen this film, if you haven't, well, shame on you for listening to us ruin the movie right. for you. But uh, if you have, um, hopefully you enjoyed some of the stuff that we talked about. It's been a lot of fun. Ditto, ditto. Yeah. So do you have a recommendation for the week? I do. Nice. I do. I'm going to recommend actually something that's related to what we were to this not to this film, but to the people in this film, mm -hmm. uh, World War Z, Ooh. which I, I'm not a zombie fan. I'll go out and say, uh, I like 28 days later. Zombie movies done well can be awesome. Right. But too many times they're just like <sighs> boring as yeah. hell. But this World War Z is kind of like, it's not like the best zombie movie, but it's still really good. And Brad Pitt's really, really good in it. And I just saw, World War Z two is coming out and guess who's directing it? Finchies. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so it's been announced. I don't know when it's coming out, I guess next year sometime or whatever. But, uh, again, Brad Pitt's going to be in it and David Fincher is going to direct. So that's going to be, that's that's, I think that one is going to be 
way better than the first one. But God, I hope so. I, yeah. I have to think so. If he doesn't pick bad projects, like there's maybe some films where you don't love it as much, but I think every single one of his films, even including Alien Three, like is is worth a watch. Yeah. Um, I mean, he even though that one's at the bottom, but yeah. <laughs> well, he didn't jump on this one. They had somebody else who backed out, and then he had to be convinced to do to do it. Yeah, but his logic was still pretty sound. He's like, you know what? There's it's nice to direct a blockbuster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. When you got someone like Brad Pitt on the other side of the lens, because uh, I'm sure gonna... he loves every film that he creates, but it's probably really frustrating to make a Zodiac and no one watches it. Yeah. It's not in the even press. though it's a great movie. Nobody cares. Right. You know, and actually I was going to recommend Mindhunter, but on that note, I'm going to recommend Zodiac. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's yeah. I like it. It's like such it. a good movie. There's some really astounding filmmaking going on in that film. Yeah, worth a watch and awesome. It's very, very thoughtful film. Great. Excellent performances. Sweet. Awesome. So what are we going to do next week? Next week, we are going to do Call Me By Your Name. Yay. I'm really excited. Awesome. That I was, haven't seen it yet. That was actually my favorite film from last year. Really? So, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I'm looking forward to it then. Yeah. So no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for telling me. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> no, it's all right. I don't. I don't have to like it because you like it. True that. It's okay. I just don't want you to go in and think this is best year, best of the year quality. Don't worry. I won't. Good. I won't because I, I haven't been crazy. I haven't seen it, but I haven't been crazy to see Phantom Thread. Ooh, good point. You know. Yeah. So and everybody's raving about it. I'm like, yeah, eh, they're I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I'll see it if I have three hours to kill, which I never do. Um, anyway, so yeah, make sure to subscribe and review us on iTunes and leave us a note saying what you'd like us to talk about. Um, and any kinds of things that you find interesting, we're, we're all ears on that front and, uh, check out the pestlepodcast.com slash fight club for all the goodies that, uh, Wes will be throwing up there. Yeah, actually we'll be throwing up some of these things I've talked about and probably, what ends up happening as I'm scrubbing through the movie, I'll, I'll pick out one or two other scenes that I'm like, this is really cool. Just one or two. Yeah, probably. Yeah. There's this cool tracking shot or blocking scene where, uh, he waves down the bus. Oh yeah. Holy I was crap. just thinking that. I was just thinking that. What an incredible, like, it, yeah. Trusting your stunt driver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Holy crap. Uh, here you read the quote of the day. Today. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So today's quote is brought to you by David Fincher. Filmmaking isn't if you can just strap on a camera onto an actor and steady cam and point it at their face and follow them through the movie. That is not what movie making is. That is not what it's about. It's not just about getting a performance. It's also about the psychology of the cinematic moment and the psychology of the presentation of that, of that window. I love that. It goes right back to what we were saying earlier about thinking through what is this film? What is this scene? How does it all play together? And how can I enunciate that? Because I think what ends up happening all too often is people say, how can I make this the coolest shot possible? How can I make this the prettiest thing possible? Instead of saying, how can I tell the story without the dialogue, without the the flashy colors? What if I do want to have a scene with all uniform color in in the lighting and now i can enunciate that this is a dull period of tyler durden's life and then yeah. it'll give us something to contrast to later 
people don't do that enough. In one of my last short films, uh, I'm very much a, a movement kind of guy. I love movement. I love tracking shots and handheld. I love all that stuff. But in one of my last short films, I thought it made more sense to do all these locked off shots because I was trying to emphasize some things and experiment with some things and just see storytelling wise. Let me see if this helps connect the story in a deeper way in a more meaningful way and through blocking my actors around the camera, that kind of thing. And it's, you don't always win. It does, it's not always going to be a home run, but if you don't begin to think about film and storytelling in that way, as a creator, you're not, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're missing out on all the deeper riches because if, if, if all it takes is to put someone by a window and take a photo that doesn't make a photographer. That yeah. just means you can take a good picture. Right. If you want to be a filmmaker, you have to get into the psychology and find out how you can make it cinematic based around that psychology. This has been fun. Awesome. Uh, I was, I've been looking forward to this this one for a while. I was scared shitless, man. I was Why? Like, I didn't know if I was going to be able to find anything that I thought was interesting. And uh, it took You're- me two viewings. I watched it twice today. <laughs> Today. Today. <laughs> God. Okay, you win. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you for joining us, guys. Uh, again, uh, please go to thepassivepodcast.com slash fight club. Check it out. Review us on iTunes and and, and talk to us. Uh, if you don't, this goes nowhere. So uh, we want to make sure that this gets out to everybody and you are the cat, you are the way that that happens. So uh, say hi to us. Um, and until next time, I am Todd. I am Wes. Go watch some movies.